This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Our society often views lifelong single people, especially women, as miserable, defective, and doomed to solitude, a stereotype that plagues black single women. But is it time to accept that marriage isn't everyone's destiny and that some people are happier living alone? I hope that you're just as likely to ask somebody why you are single as you ask somebody why you are married. Black, middle-class, single, and thriving coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. In the late 1990s, We had a golden age for black films. For many African-Americans, it was the first chance to see black love and relationships on the screen in movies like Love and Basketball, The Best Man, and of course, Love Jones. The film that starred Lorenz Tate and Neil Long as a pair of young aspiring creatives whose lives are playing out in the world of Chicago's black artistic middle class. After a few bumps in the road, our couple finds their way to a Hollywood ending, a lifetime of poetry slams and jazz clubs and koofy hats as they walk off into the sunset or the rainy, romantic, bohemian night. I never stop thinking about you. I want us to be together again. For, for as long as we can be. As usual, your timing couldn't be worse. You always want what you want when you want it. Why is everything so urgent with you? Let me tell you something. This here, right now, at this very moment, is all that matters to me. I love you. That's urgent like a motherfucker. But what happens to those folks in real life? Does that relationship last if a long-distance romance becomes too hard or they get busy with work or they just decide that they want to stay single? What happens to the part of the black middle class that never gets married? Well, sociologist Chris Marsh has written a book about it. It's called The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. She's a sociology professor at the University of Maryland, and she joins us now. Chris Marsh, welcome to A Word. Jason, it's such a pleasure to be with you today. I was very excited about this conversation because we don't get to have this conversation a lot. And I think as sort of the bulk of Gen X is now literally pushing 50 This is a pretty relevant conversation. What inspired you to write this book? One of the things that was really important to me when I was starting out my academic career is I wanted to make sure that I did not pimp the poor. There are a lot of people that look like me who do a lot of research on Black poor Americans, and I did not want to look at poor Blacks. I'm not saying it's a problem, but what I am saying is that to understand all of Black America, I wanted to look at people that were middle class and how they were living their lives. But what I started to see in the social science literature, especially in the demographic literature, is that marriage rates were changing for everybody, but it was way more pronounced for black folks. So I really wanted to understand like why that is the case and what does that actually mean? So for the first part of my academic career, I built quantitative models to demonstrate that there's a demographic shift in the black middle class away from married couples to young black professionals who aren't married and are living alone. The characters that you laid out in the intro about the Love Jones, the movie. 
So once I built those models, I really wanted to put some meat. So in the book, I say that I want to put metaphorical meat on the numeric bones that I built over the year. So I really wanted to talk to people who were in the Love Jones cohort, and I wanted to know how they lived their lives, how they thought about being single, what it actually meant to them. It's one thing to develop the models and show the trend is there. It's another thing to actually talk to the group and get more nuance and more discussion and more texture in the group. And that's what the book is really trying to do. I love numbers. And as much as quantitative work was the bane of my existence in graduate school, uh, I do like it because it does define boundaries. So when you talk about this Love Jones cohort, who are they? Like, what are the specifics in a demographically? What years are we talking about? How are you sort of economically defining middle class? What level of education? Are they regionally based? How are we defining this group? For my qualitative work and both my quantitative work, they were 25 to 65. That's the age group that I was trying to capture. Those that are just post-college and those that are outside of the childbearing age and moving towards retirement. I wanted people who had never been married. Not single, but never married. And it's really interesting, Jason, because in some of the qualitative work that I did when I interviewed people, 45 minutes into the interview, the person would say, well, I was married for seven years, but that man's dead to me, so he doesn't exist. I was like, but you were married. Or they say, you know, I have money grubbing leeches, children, so I'm not going to leave any of my assets to them. The thing is, is that they had the option to decide whether or not they wanted to leave their assets and their wealth to their children. I wanted people who had never been exposed to the stimuli, the stimuli being marriage. So I wanted people that had never been married, didn't have any children, and were currently living alone. You know, one of the interesting things is you can go on Twitter, you can go on Instagram, you can go on TikTok. There's 50,000 people out there giving relationship advice. What's one big difference you found between, say, a 52-year-old woman, homeowner, makes money, prestigious job, has degree, and is single living alone, and a man in that same position? What are some differences between those two? There were people in the cohort that said, no matter what, they don't want to be partnered. Marriage, relationships are absolutely just not their thing. But one of the things I had to decide when I wrote the book is whether or not I wanted to include men in the category or not, because women dominate the category. But I'm so glad that I did, because to your point, I picked up some really interesting gender differences. And one of the gender differences directly gets to your question. You had a lot of women, younger and older, who said that they were hoping that they might find somebody, those that wanted to be in relationships, but they weren't willing to make any accommodations or settle. But for men, it was just a matter of when they decide to partner with someone. So it was a very stark gender difference between the men and the women. The women were hopeful and the men, it was just a matter of time before it actually happened. And that was across age categories as well. We're going to take a short break. We come back more on the Love Jones cohort. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Professor Chris Marsh about her new book, The Love Jones Cohort. So you've said in your research that there are structural problems with dating and black people. I remember when I was a kid growing up in the 90s and, you know, you had that sort of Christian suburbanite thing and there was this big push. Also, even when I was in college, there were these books called Say No to Dating. And they were always by these sort of Christian youth pastors who would be like, don't go on individual dates, go on group dates, blah, blah, blah. And I always thought that works fine when you're white. 
and your options are around you all the time. I was growing up in Nebraska, but there are different things that black people have to take into consideration, even if you're open to all sorts of different kinds of partnerships. So what do you mean by sort of the structural challenges to black dating? Because I think those are real and they have a lot to do sometimes with region or where you are, your age. But what did your research find? I say it quite parsimoniously in the book that structural forces constrain personal choices. Said differently, racism constrains personal choices. And I think what happens oftentimes when we have a conversation about singlehood, it's at the individual level. And I'm trying to overlay a structural conversation on singlehood. So if I, Chris Marsh, want to marry a Black man, somebody that has a bachelor's degree, my dating choices are constrained. If I want to marry somebody that has a PhD, my dating choices are constrained. If I want to marry a Black man that has a PhD that owns a home, my dating choices are constrained. If I want to marry a Black man that has a PhD, owns a home, and makes six figures, and has estate planning, my dating choices are constrained. So whether or not people are actively single by choice or by force, we have to understand in Black America that your choices are constrained before you even get to the option of whether or not you want to be in a partnership. And it becomes more of a structural conversation. And it's really important because I don't want Black women to say, woe is me, what's wrong with me? Understand, honey, your dating pool was constrained before you even got to this point where you're trying to figure out who you want to partner with. So I'm just trying to broaden the conversation and include more of a structural context. Do you find that the hope and expectation for single black women changes as they get older? Are they more open to same sex partners? Are they more open to partners of a different race? Or do they just reach a point where like, I don't care? The age effect really didn't show up with the respondents. When you're younger, it's like, okay, you're supposed to do like these uh, stations on the life course. You go to college, you get married, you have children, you buy a home. But then when you get older, people don't want to have, and and the cohort talked about this, they didn't want to have a medical episode and be in the house by themselves and be sick and didn't have anybody to take care of them. So I think the needs for the relationship changed. I didn't really see an age effect where the desire for the relationship changed. And related to your question, one of the things that was fascinating in the book, and I actually grappled with this as a scholar, I think I left it open for the readers to make a decision. I asked who was more stigmatized, men, women, younger, or older? And one of the things that was really interesting is that it was all over the board. You had some people that talked about how younger folks were more stigmatized and some people talked about how older folks were more stigmatized. And the argument was that younger folks have a larger dating pool. And because they have a larger dating pool, if they're not partnered or they're not married, clearly something's wrong with them because the numbers are on their side. But as you age, there's older folks that have died off. So since they've died off, your pool shrinks. So we're not going to think that something's wrong with you. Maybe it's an artifact of the numbers. And then sometimes you had women that were more stigmatized and then you had men that were more stigmatized. Women more stigmatized, especially as they were older, they're the angry black woman, they're selfish, they're a ball buster. All of these kind of ideas is what merged for women. And the woman in the cohort said, don't get older and cut your hair because automatically you're a lesbian then too. But for men, it's like, oh, you don't want to settle down. You just want to be a gigolo. You just want to be out there hoeing. So we couldn't really get a handle on where the stigma actually lied. But what we could get a handle on is that across the board, being single, you're stigmatized. When you talk about structure, I also think of region. There's a big difference between being middle class, black and single in Indianapolis or Detroit than Atlanta. And I would also say that a place like the DMV where you're in the mid-Atlantic, you are literally a short bus trip or train trip from New York 
Philadelphia, as opposed to being that person in Dallas, where it's like, well, you're in Texas, right? <laughs> so if you, you got those three Texas cities and maybe New Orleans, if you want to hop on a flight, it's not the same thing as I could literally get off work in D.C. and take a train and see a potential partner or even just a date in Philly. One of the key elements of the single lifestyle for those that are in the cohort are their friends. And the friends play a central role in the lifestyle of those that are single and living alone in the black middle class. And I do think being in a city where you have like a lot of friends that look like you, it makes it much easier. So being in Dallas, it's a little bit harder because you may not have friends that look like you and it's harder to get close to them. But I do think one of the benefits of like a Dallas is that you actually can live alone because the standard of living is lower in Dallas versus in the DMV. So when the DMV, besides your friends, playing a central role in how you navigate your lifestyle, you might also decide to pull your resources and live with your friends because it is so expensive living in the D.C. area, living in L.A. and or living in the New York, New Jersey area. We're going to take a short break. We come back more about being black, middle class and single with Professor Chris Marsh. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Professor Chris Marsh about her new book, The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. This is one thing that I always find interesting when we have these kinds of discussions. So much of our understanding about singledom, especially black singledom and marriage, is driven by television. It's driven by popular culture. Uh, There's a new show that just debuted called Act Your Age, and it's got Tisha Campbell and Kim Whitley and Yvette Nicole Brown, and they're all playing black women in their 50s who move in together after one of them decides that she doesn't want to get married, one has never been married, and the other is divorced. Oh, this might sound crazy after the weekend we had, but honestly, there's nobody I'd rather be around than you two. What about Jacob? I said what I said. (laughs) Besides, this is the first time I didn't think about my stupid checklist. Mm -hmm. I just want to enjoy life with my best friends. You know what? Bump it. Sure, I'm in. What are some of the pop culture references or images that you may have picked up in your qualitative interviews that may be influencing how people see their lives? Where does pop culture come into play on this? What was kind of the undercurrent in their responses and kind of an undercurrent to the whole project is that everything is still catered to a marriage and partnered market. So media, social media, the big screen, the little screen, all of these like advertisements tend to cater to a marriage and or partnered market. And so I think that is what continues to shape some people's desire to want to be married. I do think It is important to ask people, why do you want to be in a romantic relationship? Which gets right back to the point of the sitcom that's coming out. In Black America in particular, and the respondents said this repeatedly, especially the Black women, we have these non-romantic nurturing relationships that really help us navigate our single lifestyle. And we sometimes overvalue the romantic relationship and undervalue these non-romantic nurturing relationships that we have. One of the things that was essential to the cohort, the children of their friends. So you had a lot of people in the cohort who had godchildren and had social nieces and nephews, and they were like an essential character in their lifestyle as being single and living alone as well. So much so, one of the chapters talks about like wealth accumulation 
as well as wealth dissemination. And I wanted to know like how the cohort is going to disseminate their wealth because they don't have children. And that's where you started to see how important godchildren were to them because they were often going to give to their godchildren, to their nieces, to their nephew, to their social nieces and their social nephews. To your earlier point about gender differences, one of the things that I did pick up with the respondents in the book about gender differences is that Black women really did have a lock on these non-romantic nurturing relationships, sister circles, sister girls. You know, they go out and do things with them. I'm drawing from some of the work of Robert Staples, a sociologist that did a book called Black Singles years ago. One of the arguments he made and the respondents in the book also substantiated is that Black men don't necessarily, in the cohort, they didn't necessarily have these same non-romantic nurturing relationships. The respondents said that they might be thought of as weak. They might be thought of as homosexual. So they tended to use male relationships for utility purposes, like to move a couch or to play in a sporting event, but not these non-romantic nurturing relationships. So one of the things that I really do hope happens when people read this book is that we normalize non-romantic nurturing relationships among Black men. What are some of the ways that you can maintain happiness and fulfillment if you are in this demographic, right? Because some people are in this demographic not by choice. So getting back to the argument that I made, structural forces constrain our personal choices. I am pushing back against the idea of a family. If we use the Census Bureau definition of a family, it's someone that you're related to by blood, adoption, or marriage. So because I, Chris Marsh, am not married and I don't have any children, I would be considered a household in the Census Bureau. I would not be considered a family. I think it's highly problematic that I'm not being considered a family. So if we think about the benefits of being a family, the tax structure we know is set up to benefit certain kind of marriages and it penalizes singlehood. And Dorothy Brown has written a great book called The Whiteness of Wealth. And in her argument, she is suggesting that we need to all file as single. And if we can't all file as single, we need to all file as a family. So if you believe my argument that structural forces can strain personal choices, and then you're going to discriminate against me because I'm not partnered, I'm pushing back against that. So for those that understand that discrimination, understand I'm trying to change policy and have us define family in more inclusive kind of ways, especially because a lot of this is structural. So I got you for those that are concerned and you need something to hold on to. I got you on the policy side. I'm working through that. On the personal side, one of the things I would really ask you to consider is that you may not have the romantic relationship. And I'm a woman of faith. If you want it to happen, I hope that it does happen for you. I'm also a demographer and the numbers may not necessarily be there. But do not forget about the non-romantic relationships that you have in your life. There are some predators out there that are looking for a sugar mama as well as a sugar daddy. And when you get sick, they're not going to be there at the hospital bed for you. But your girlfriend, your sandbox, the person you grew up with is going to be there with you. So don't underestimate and undervalue those non-romantic relationships because they really do mean a lot and they really can sustain you in this transitional period if you really want to move from the Love Jones cohort into those that are a part of like the Black middle class that are married with children, thinking of the Huxtables from the Cosby show. You have a lot of people who are raised in a religious tradition that says that your goal is to be partnered, right? T.D. Jakes made a lot of money in the early 2000s, especially amongst the cohort that you're talking about by selling that story, right? When people are raised <laughs> with that sort of religious messages and imagery, do you receive any pushback? I mean, are there people who hear your message and say, hey, you are attacking 
the nuclear family. It is so important that black families stay together. Do you receive pushback about what you're saying as being anti-black, anti-family or or anti-faith? Yes. E, all of the above. I get hate mail. And my hate mail often says I'm bad for black America and I should be promoting black marriages. So here's my point to that. I say it in the beginning of the book. I'm like, I'm pro-black love. I am pro-black marriage, but I am not for oppressive, toxic relationships. Some churches could be saying you want to be in these relationships, but we got to talk about what these relationships actually look like. Don't just be in a relationship. Be in a relationship that works for you, that you and your partner navigate. I'd much rather you stay single than be in a relationship simply to be in a relationship. The way in which the Black church promotes marriage, it can be patriarchal, it can be oppressive, it can be unfulfilling and toxic for certain people. I'm hoping the Black church will be able to have these conversations, but I am indicting a lot of institutions and it can't just be marriage for the sake of marriage. It's got to be healthy, happy, whole marriages. And until you get there where you're at that space, I'm like, stand confidently in your singleness, in your happiness and your wholeness as a single person. Enjoy your friends, rally around your friends, let your friends rally around you. But I do think the the black church has to look at themselves and look at the messaging that they're sending because it continues to be marriage, marriage, marriage. But but we have a high percentage of divorce rates in, in black church as well. So what kind of marriages are we actually getting into? And one of the other arguments that I make in the book is that besides thinking of a family, of one, I think that we should be able to develop augmented families. Let's be more inclusive of what Black love looks like. It doesn't always have to be this heteronormative mother, father, 2.5 kids and a Black picket fence. you got some very strong relationships that are stronger than blood. And we need to find a way to institutionalize those relationships so that they can be benefits and later life for those institutionalized relationships. So it's not going to be a family of one. Let's put augmented families together so you do know where your estate is going to go to. And one of the things I do argue in the book, I tell people, look straight ahead, don't blink at me or anything like that. But how many of you have a living trust or will in place. If we just think of Black Americans, regardless of your marital status, less than 30% of Black Americans have a living trust or a will. Less than a quarter of the respondents in the Love Jones cohort had a living trust or will. Especially if you're single, you want to make sure you have estate planning in place so that when something happens to you, no matter how much you have or how little you have, you will know exactly where it's going to go. Chris Marsh is a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland and the author of The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. Thank you so much for joining us today on A Word. Jason, thank you so much for having me. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. Thank you.